All right, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Zach McCulley, um, and today we'll be walking together uh, through what I think was the most difficult period in Owen's life. It was probably the busiest period in his life, at least if you go by his literary output. Um, it was a period of great suffering for Owen. Um, it was a period that he would have to rely heavily on uh, the grace of God to sustain him against persecution. It was also a period in which he would have to rely on uh, the help of friends uh, and the encouragement of other believers. Um, we'll talk about all this today, but we'll begin by praying. Dear Father, we thank you. Uh, for your goodness to us in Christ, uh, for, for the delight of the gospel uh, that you've given to us by your spirit. I pray that this morning you would increase our delight in you uh, as we consider Owen, uh, humble us as we consider his life and his work. Uh, help us in this, we pray. Amen. Well, once again, this morning we're looking at the final two decades of Owen's life. Uh, beginning with the restoration of the monarchy uh, in 1660 up until uh, Owen's death in 1683. So just to recap where we've been, um, we've, we've covered Owen coming to faith and becoming a pastor. We looked at his chaplaincy in Ireland uh, a near decade as an Oxford reformer. Uh, now finally, we're here looking at his life uh, as, a, as a rebel um, in, in the city of London. Um, and then next week we'll close with, with tips on, on reading Owen, how he's been read in the past and how we could approach him today. Um, well, how about an overview for where we're going today? Um, we'll, we'll start with just a, kind of an introduction to the setting uh, in 1660 um, England, what the restoration meant for Owen. Uh, where he was living, what he was doing, what he was, what he was writing. I'll try to explain, if I can, just the significance of, of this moment when Charles II returns to the throne uh, and what that meant for Owen and, and what that meant for nonconformists like him. Um, I mentioned how Owen wrote, wrote a lot during this period, so we'll discuss some of the works he published. Um, I want to highlight two, two kind of broad areas um, of his writing here. It'll, it'll be his, his toleration works and then his uh, anti-Catholic works. Um, uh, there were also, you know, the, the two million word commentary on the book of Hebrew, Hebrews and, um, and that he began publishing in 1668. And then there were dozens and dozens of other theological works uh, that, that he would write in this period. But I'm going to save save those theological works and, and the Hebrews commentary for next week, just because I think it deserves a little fuller attention than what we can kind of give as we're like building out this, this context. Um, and so we'll, we'll basically just be looking at, at the toleration works and the anti-Catholic works for his writing. Um, then there's also his sermons. Um, and so we'll look at, we'll look at Owen's preaching. Um, thirdly, um, you know, he, a lot of his sermons were published in, while he was alive, some after he died. Um, and uh, there's even more that 
have hardly seen the light of day that are not in his published works, but are kept alive in, in notebooks of people who are in his congregation taking notes, um, very detailed notes on his sermons. And so we'll take a look at some of those and sort of get a, a lens into um, uh, what his congregational life was like, what his uh, ministry was like in his preaching. Uh, finally, his networking. We'll try to kind of tie everything together um, and consider Owen's determination um, to survive persecution as a religious minority. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about um, how he tried to expand some of his networks and friendships, what he was doing socially to, um, to uh, gain more security under persecution and, and hopefully to keep the uh, Puritan hope uh, alive. So begin with just an introduction to the Restoration. Charles II, he turned 30 years old on May 29, 1660. A few days prior to that, he had just stepped off a, um, a ship back onto England's soil. This was the place where his father had been executed um, about 10 years prior. It's not. <laughs> um, but he's coming back to England just, just a, a decade after his, his father had been killed. Um, and the period in between um, was, was known as the interregnum, this period between kings where um, Puritan revolutionaries, they had really thrived um, during that period and had high hopes that they could achieve great things for Christ and for their country uh, during that decade. Um, they, they thought that they could break away from these gov governmental barriers that uh, limited their styles of worship and, and actually mandated other styles of worship that they found unbiblical. Um, they thought they could break free of that. But when Charles returned to England, th that time had, had really come and gone. Um, uh, there were certainly some, though, who celebrated Charles's return. Um, you, you read things about brigades of soldiers marching the streets of London at his return and church bells ringing and, and children in the streets throwing flowers and such. Um, and so in a lot of ways, it, it, it maybe seemed like a triumphant return for Charles. Um, I think his, his presence may have for some symbolized a, a, a sense of um, a return to uh, political normal, normalcy. Um, maybe a bit of consistency, a measure of security and, and safety that, that was probably lacking during the uh, decade of um, uh, the uh, revolution uh, in, in the late 40s and, and into the 50s. Um, but for the Puritans, the restoration of Charles would mean a much different thing. Um, the Puritans and, and religious nonconformists, they... Um, they would now be out of step with the prescribed religion of the king. Um, and so the restoration would be especially difficult for those um, who, who didn't align with the king's religion, but also even more so for those who had played a, a prominent role in the execution of Charles's father. Um, many, many were hunted down and killed. Um, 
a few escaped to America. Uh, one of those uh, who did settled in New Haven, John Dixwell. Um, but the program of retaliation, um, the big thing here with the restoration is that the, the, the program of, retali of retaliation was, was very fierce. Um, in, in 1661, uh, the corpse of Oliver Cromwell was disinterred and his head would be displayed in Westminster where Charles I had been put on trial. In fact, there were, there were many heads of former Republicans who had played some role in the revolution or, or seemed to be a threat to the new regime where they were lined along the walls of the city of London as, as a, really as a reminder uh, to those uh, in the present day who, who may consider further rebellion. Um, men, men that Owen preached alongside, like, like a man named Hugh Peters, um, who, who used the same rhetoric that Owen did to justify the execution of Charles. Men like that were killed. And so Owen was in a very precarious situation. Um, and I think it's unquestionable that he was really afraid. Um, he may have been uh, even on, on the verge of a sort of emotional breakdown um, that, that was driven by fear of what might happen to him uh, in this new era. Uh, he moved immediately um, after, after, the, or after Charles's return from Oxford to his old home in Stadhampton, uh, where he gathered a small church in 1660. Uh, and it was probably from there um, that he would receive news of the first of four governmental acts that came to be known as the Clarendon Code. Um, the Clarendon Code it included um, f four big laws, um, the Corporation Act of 1661, the Act of Uniformity, pictured there in 1662, the Conventicle Act and the Five Mile Act. So just what those were, briefly, the, the Corporation Act, it, it barred anyone from holding public office who was not taking communion in the English church. Um, the Conventicle Act, it outlawed the gathering of more than five people who were not related in any unorthor, un, unauthorized worship. Uh, the Five Mile Act, um, it, it forbade uh, dissenting ministers from coming within five miles of the parish um, where, where they had previously preached prior to the restoration. Um, and so you have now this category of, of dissent um, where uh, you have ministers who, who refuse to sign their allegiance to uh, the Book of Common Prayer. They refuse to order their worship services um, around uh, according to the Book of Common Prayer. And, and this was the demand of the Act of Uniformity. Um, those who would not sign off on it, um, they were banished from their ministerial post. And so the implementation of the Act of Uniformity, um, it resulted in what was known as the Great Ejection, where 2,000 English ministers and, and probably more were um, were kicked from their ministerial posts um, as a result of not um, signing on to the new uh, religious uh, mandates. Men like Richard Baxter, um, uh, 
John, John Flavel, um, Thomas Manton, Thomas Watson, they were, they were all kicked from, from their positions within the state. Um, the prescribed worship in the prayer book, again, just, it, it, they, they saw it as over, overly ceremonial. Um, it, it limited the discretion of the pastor to uh, preach and teach the way he saw fit. Um, it brought back uh, Latin elements into the liturgy. Um, now, Owen wasn't among those who were ejected, um, because remember, he didn't have, a, he didn't have an official ministry uh, within the state church structure when, when he left Oxford. He had merely gone out of Oxford um, on his own, out ahead of the Act of Uniformity, and, and gathered a, just a, a small group of friends in Stadhampton. Uh, but the Act of Uniformity, it, it affected him none, nonetheless. Um, I, I mentioned that it, it took an emotional toll on him. Um, and, and the reason I say that is, is, is this. He wrote to a friend around the time um, that, that I hope the cries of many thousand souls in England for the bread of life will pierce the heavens. He's referring to Christians unwilling to um, attend the new state church services. Uh, but even more, more than this, Owen, Owen wrote a very curious letter um, dated just before the great ejection where he actually pretends to be a minister within the Church of England who might be ejected for nonconformity, um, which we, we just said was not even a possibility for him. And in the letter, he says that he may give up the ministry on the whole and go become a medical doctor and give himself, as he says, to the study of physics and arithmetic and surgery and anatomy so that I may be capable in some country, town, or other to get a livelihood. And so on the surface, it makes no sense at all because Owen, Owen wasn't in a position to be ejected. So I think the way, the way we approach the letter then is, is to understand it, to represent um, Owen as just reckoning with the staggering weight of failed revolution. What, he, he's, I think he's speaking you know, uh, tongue-in-cheek here. Um, there's no indication that he actually really considered beyond this letter of, of leaving the ministry, but Owen was trying to grapple, um, really just venting over his current situation um, where he was unsure about what his life was going to look like from here on out. Um, despite the uncertainty, though, um, the next 20 years of Owen's life would be marked by um, just uh, incredible activity um, that, that I think would be the most important also for his legacy. Uh, a big reason for that was just the massive amount of writing that he produced uh, in the years after 1660. Um, consider this, this list of publications here. Um, there's a couple slides. It's too small to read, but the, the purpose is just to see all that he's writing. Um, okay, so he's, he's very active. Most of these are appearing illegally as well. Um, and he's, he's writing many anonymously. Um, but over half of his corpus, it, it comes after the restoration. It included some 40 
40 books or so, another 20 or so introductory essays to other, uh, other dissenters' volumes. Um, you could spend a lifetime with these, really, these works. Um, but as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, we'll, we'll just break down Owen's writing into, into two categories and leave some of these for, for tomorrow or for, for next week. Um, and those two categories will just be the, the toleration writings and the anti-Catholic writings. Um, so now we've talked about how Owen was a nonconformist, and that meant that um, he would not pledge his allegiance to the Church of England uh, or conduct worship according to their standards. Uh, and so he was in the legal category of dissent. Uh, he was a congregationalist, which meant he believed that members of individual churches, uh, they held power to govern themselves. Um, but under the Restoration monarchy, Congregationalists, uh, were, with the exception of, of one year in 1672, they were not tolerated by the government, right? Um, and so it's from within that context of intolerance that Owen would write books pleading for religious toleration. Um, one of those books was called um, Indulgence and Toleration Considered, uh, which Owen published anonymously in 1667. And the big argument was that uh, censorship of religion by the government, it violated the law of nature that, that man should uh, only act according to his conscience. Um, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that the government um, shouldn't do some sort of censoring. He, he didn't want full religious toleration. Um, he, he didn't want full freedom of religion, uh, basically just um, freedom for the Protestant religion. Um, you know, and thought that uh, by, by mandating a particular form of, of Protestantism in England, the government divided Protestants like Presbyterians and Baptists and Congregationists like himself, um, who he argued were, were, were really closely aligned on all essential matters um, of doctrine. And, and so what, what were those, those central matters, those first tier uh, uh, issues. It would be things like the doctrine of the Trinity or justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. So the, 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 the solas of the Reformation, um, these were things that, he, that dissenters like himself could sign off on. Uh, and, and he thought should, those things should form the basis of their acceptance in the kingdom. Um, as, for, as for other things, he thought, he thought they ought to be able to determine how to worship God on the basis of their own conscience as it was being informed uh, by the word of God. And so it's really no wonder that, that this book in particular, it, it, it appeared without his name on it because you know, these were really bold appeals for one to make from a position uh, on, the, on the margins of society. And so Owen would appeal... Um, Excuse me. He would he would support his appeals for for conscience um, with with also very pragmatic reasoning. Um, he would argue that the government was doing itself a disservice by marginalizing uh, dissenters because their partici their participation in society was actually was actually a, a practical good. It was good for the economy of England. These were honest people, um, hard workers. They were, they were Christians who you know, held, had, had 
worked in shops and had particular trades. They were craftsmen and that sort of thing. Um, and, and so Owen's making that appeal as well, um, that, that dissenters like himself should be um, tolerated. He would pick up the same combination of arguments, conscience and, and these practical arguments in another book called A Peace Offering, um, where he would show how, how the conscience was directly tied to actions, uh, meaning that you, you cannot violate one without affecting the other. Um, the government couldn't say, we're, you know, we're only requiring particular actions of you, but we're not uh, controlling your, your mind, so to speak. And so Owen wanted to show how the two were, were were inseparable. Um, and, and, and again, he would repeat the pragmatic argument of, of dissenters' uh, benefits uh, to the country. Um, and he, he, when he's making that argument about their, a, a, a dissenters' benefit to the country, he, he probably was aware of the, the, of the irony um, of, of what he was saying because he was a former revolutionary, right? And dissenters were, were viewed as radical. Um, and so there's a chance that his, his readers may not have taken him really seriously, um, uh, that, that dissenters that could serve a positive role in the kingdom. And so Owen did a lot of work to sort of downplay his past and his, his previous involvement in, uh, in political revolutions of the 40s and 50s. Um, and, and so in, in downplaying his past, he's going to say, you know, dis dissenters, we, we just want peace. We just want tranquility. Um, in another place, Owen would remark that I, I, I ever did abhor swords and guns and crusades in the matter of religion. And I don't, I don't know about that. Um, so we, we've talked already about how maybe, maybe that wasn't the case. Um, and it, it, it sure seemed like he had justified the use of those things in, in different contexts. Uh, but times had changed. And Owen may have realized that um, he wasn't in the same social position uh, he was during the previous two decades. Uh, he was no longer in a position where he was helping arbitrate uh, national religion. He, he was dependent upon another to do that, namely the, the king. Um, and so um, his, his enemies, like the Roman Catholics, for example, um, who he had once had an upper hand on in the previous decades, uh, they're now on level footing with one another. Um, both are marginalized groups uh, before the king, um, hoping that he'll tolerate them. Um, and so here's Owen trying to sort of present himself and his ideas um, in as favorable of a light as, as he could, uh, because in, in his eyes, um, there, was, there was a real possible future in which Protestantism was overthrown by, by, by the, this, this new monarchy and where, where Roman Catholicism could, could again become uh, the national religion of, of England. Um, and so he's he's lost his position of power. Um, well, look now to, to Owen's anti-Catholic writings on, on the Restoration. There's, there's a few key texts to take note of. Um, some of them were written um, to, uh, in response to Catholic writings. Others um, 
were, were published as lectures that Owen would give in a series with, with other Protestant minister, ministers who had fears about the return of Roman Catholicism. Uh, in, in some ways, those fears may have seemed irrational. Um, uh, at least some of the beliefs that Protestants held at the time were there was a lot of conspiracy. Um, for example, there's the Great Fire of uh, of London in 1666 that probably a majority of Protestants believed that uh, it, it had been started by Catholics, even though uh, the evidence to support that belief was entirely lacking. Um, there were other conspiracies that would float around about Catholic plotting um, to regain status in England. A lot of those, a lot of people who who, who granted any credence to to you know, new, new theories of Catholic conspiracy. They were probably thinking back to the gunpowder plot of 1605, which was a plan um, by Catholics to assassinate the king, to blow up the House of Lords. Um, but some of the concerns were, were legitimate. Um, uh, Owen never comments on, on the fire, uh, or he comments on the fire, but, but he, he never blames Catholics on that. Um, and so some of his concerns were, were legitimate. Uh, for example, a lot of people believed that Charles II had converted to Catholicism secretly uh, when he was in exile over the previous decade in, in France and the Spanish Netherlands. He hadn't at the time, but he made plans to in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and uh, there, was, uh, there was also the fear that uh, that the king's brother, James, the Duke of York, um, may be a Catholic. He was a suspected Catholic, uh, and he was also next in line uh, to the throne behind Charles, and his conversion would actually be made public in the spring of 1673. And so it, it was reasonable to think that the royal family could at some point lead England back to Rome. And so Owen did his best in these anti-Catholic works to sort of puff up his Protestant credentials as best he could. Uh, and he would key in on, on some of the big errors of Roman Catholicism that he thought were um, most, the most detrimental, the most offensive to Christian religion. And so he'll write um, against the worship of Mary and, um, and against justification by works and against the Catholic Mass, which to him was, was really the re-crucifying of Christ uh, he'd write about how Catholics devalued scripture and how the Pope stood as a usurper uh, of the power and, and authority that belonged only to Christ. Um, those were all common uh, doctrinal, doctrinal points that um, you'd find in Protestant anti-Catholic work. Um, and so Owen's not unique in, in that regard, but he is distinct in another, in another aspect of his anti-Catholic work. And that's where he'll... He'll really anchor down his anti-Catholic writing on the violence of the Roman church in centuries past. And he'll recall how, how so much was accomplished by Catholics um, by the use of, of brutal force. And so he goes, he'll go through um, just the long history of, of brutality and Catholic crusading um, and, uh, and argue that you know, nothing was, was accomplished by the Catholic religion outside of what was accomplished by the use of, of force. And so he'd say they created forced unity um, and, and talk about forced professions of the Catholic faith um, according to 
really arbitrary rule of, of the Pope. And what's interesting, here's where Owen's unique in his anti-Catholicism, is that um, Owen's going to, to look to that forced unity of the Roman Church, and then he's going to look to his own government. And he's going to say, these two things are really quite similar. Um, our government is, is shading towards arbitrary rule, where you know, c- citizens' thoughts are not uh, being represented, represented, their consciences are being violated, um, all for uniformity and on the basis of an extraordinary amount of power um, being entrusted to a very small number. Um, and so England's rulers uh, could convert to Catholicism, sure. Um, there was the fear of that with Charles and James. But in Owen's mind, the government was already uh, looking, in, in his words, popish. Um, and so uh, Owen, Owen may have... Uh, I forgot to show you James. There's James. Um, he, Owen may have, may have succeeded in, in riling up fear um, among, among dissenters with his, his anti-Catholic work uh, about the direction of the government and kind of the, the looming threat of, of Roman Catholicism. Uh, and the reason I think he, he succeeded in that was... Um, because a lot of a lot of the reader, his readers on the toleration works and the anti-Catholic works, uh, they were they were beginning to imagine what a difficulty it would be to not conform to such powerful adversaries out ahead, um, and and they were they were tempted to conform um, to to um, to the government um, and and thinking that they were they were a defeated bunch, um, and so when we look to to Owen's congregational life during the Restoration years, uh, one of the perpetual issues that he's dealing with uh, is, is, is dealing with, with dissenting Christians, um, feeling the pressure of the state, and, uh, and, and, and feeling the pressure to conform to its religious standards, to, to give in, to violate their conscience, to, to pay lip service, so to speak, and, uh, really just to avoid physical consequences or imprisonment or death. Um, and those are, those are real realities that, that Owen was aware of. Uh, his congregation was meeting privately in Stadhampton, um, uh, and, and it was right after the Restoration, and it was probably being surveilled by spies. Um, and then he moves to, to a place called Stoke Newington, um, and, and lives in the home of a, of a friend of his named Charles Fleetwood, uh, beginning in 1664. Um, that congregation he gathers in the Fleetwood home. It, it probably had 30 or so members in it. Um, and then several years down the way, in 1673, that congregation of, of 30 or so, uh, it would merge uh, with a church at Leadenhall Street, London, um, a, a church whose pastor had recently died. Um, by then, the congregation numbered about 100 and, 135. Um, but at, at some point around 1669, before the congregations merged, uh, one member began taking notes on Owen's sermons. Um, and those have been preserved. And, uh, and so uh, we can get, a, as I've said, just a real, a real glimpse into Owen's preaching in this period. Um, 
and his, this, this particular member, Sir John Hartop, and, and others would continue to take notes on his sermons uh, into the next decade and, and beyond up until Owen's death. Well, uh, what we find in these sermons is, is Owen's just keen awareness of, of those pressures to conform, as I've mentioned. Um, if we look especially at sermons preached between 69 and 70, uh, we see that especially clearly there. Um, and this is why, because in, in 1670, the Conventicles Act from years prior, um, it was needing to be renewed. It had expired, and, and so um, there was a real intensification of, of uh, governmental oversight of religion, um, and those who would meet illegally, they would be under even tighter scrutiny. Um, so there was really a new wave of persecution that his church was facing. And Owen's, uh, Owen in his preaching, would, would, he, would, he would be trying to say, you know, you, you face this real great threat out there in the world, but there's a far greater spiritual danger awaiting you if you fail to root yourself in the gospel. So if you could, like, summarize the, his, his preaching in that year, that, that's it. Um, he's saying if, if you plant your hope in what the government can give, give to you or what protection it can offer you uh, for violating your conscience, conscience, you've really misjudged the greater of the, of the two kingdoms. Um, if, if the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of England are at odds, Owen's saying you, you must align with the kingdom of heaven. Um, and so across the year 1670, Owen's going to preach nine sermons on a single verse, uh, John 3, 3. And uh, the, the text says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Owen wanted his church to consider uh, that to align with God, to belong to the heavenly kingdom of Christ, uh, and and thus to, to rightly order the spiritual above the earthly, um, one first had to be born again, right? Um, and, and that's what he says, unregenerate persons not born again lie under an impossibility of, of seeing the kingdom. Um, he wanted to show at, at just a very basic level that being born again was a gracious work of God in the lives of sinners. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and Christ, he, he says, is, is the root and fountain and foundation of spiritual life. So at the very heart of the Christian religion, there was God. It was God acting. It was God doing. And what flows out of that um, is the spiritual life, which is to be lived in obedience to God. And many, dis, many dissenting Christians were forgetting this. And worse, they were, they were tempted to, as Owen tells us, walk in ways that that gave occasion to alienate the minds of men from the ways of God. He talks about how they were um, unwilling to persevere and that they were slipping. So what were they slipping into? Well, by departing from the, the, the plain and clear biblical worship of God, as, as they saw, Owen felt like they were slipping into full-on paganism. Uh, he warns them in these sermons uh, about the folly of men who would frame religion, um, as he says, in, in, in no relation to Christ. Um, and <clears throat> instead, they would, 
they would have all religion to consist in morality or, or a set of religious structures or rites that gave the appearance of religion. Um, but of, of those who would stand firm, of the faithful, he, he would say, I can truly say that all our religion is from Christ and nothing we have, do, or enjoy is but from Christ who is all and in all. And so in these sermons, Owen's, Owen's trying to reorient their thinking around Christ uh, and less around you know, any, any worldly alternative to religion. Christ was everything. Christ was worth it. Um, and Christians, he thought, they had a particular duty uh, to one another to remind each other of that reality. Uh, Owen lamented how, how many pastors, uh, probably within the established church, uh, many of them were, were just running through the motions, fulfilling their state-sanctioned duty. Uh, but Owen here is, is, in his sermons, he tells us that it's not just upon the pastors, but it's upon uh, the sheep them, themselves, uh, Christians in fellowship with one another and gathered congregations. He tells them that they have to look after one another and exhort one another to hold on to Christ. Um, they're supposed to remind one another of the gospel um, again and again and again. Uh, he, he writes here that, Oh, that God would give the churches of Jesus Christ to be true copies of this delineation of his churches, that every member with Christ as his head might supply the body and edify it in love. For there's not anything uh, to me uh, that more discovers the degeneracy of Christians than, than the neglect and contempt of this practical duty for a man to watch over his brother. Um, and so there was the, the strength, as Owen saw it, to withstand persecution, it was the gospel. And it was, it was the ordinary uh, means of grace of believers pressing one another on through hardship. Um, and I, think it's, I think it's good wisdom for, for them. It's, it's good wisdom for us. Um, but while Owen was tasking his church in this way to hold firm, he gave himself even more responsibility uh, if, he could, if he could galvanize his church and other descending Christians by extension to hold fast amidst persecution, maybe he could sort of maneuver uh, socially to make life better for them. Um, if he could grow his networks with other dissenters, uh, somehow earn favor uh, before the king even, um, maybe dissenters would be more, more uh, equipped to survive and see better days. And so uh, I think Owen was, was really determined to see better days, even even um, even under this this uh, difficult situation he w- he was in, um, he and his peers were defeated in a lot of ways. But uh, my position, as I, as I look at Owen and the restoration, is that he was still hopeful, um, and he would die before experiencing the religious toleration that that he had in mind. Um, but but when you read how active he was just socially in this period. Um, yeah, I, I tend to think that he, that he was thinking Puritans still had brighter days ahead, ahead of them. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't definite, however, that those brighter days would be in England. Um, it, it could be in New England. It could be in the colonies. Um, Owen at least considered a move to New England. Um, one colonist wrote that Owen had uh, hugely risen in the esteem of New Englanders. Um, some of his books were being read in Massachusetts uh, in the colony. Uh, in 1664, he was 
he was in the process of purchasing land in New Hampshire, and he had even been asked to become the president of Harvard uh, and to be the next minister of the first church in Boston, where John Cotton had been a pastor. Um, but the thing was for Owen, he wasn't so sure that it would be any better in New England. Um, he, he thought that the church could be persecuted uh, anywhere. And, and so he opted to stay in England. Uh, and as we have said, he, he wrote um, a lot. Um, when, you, when you look at, at those writings, um, it's interesting to see sort of the, uh, the dedications that he makes at the beginning of some of those books. Um, for example, in the, in the first volume of his Hebrews commentary, he, uh, he dedicates the book to a man named Sir William Morris, who was one of, one of King Charles's right hand, one of his right hand men. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a high ranking official in the government. Um, and, and so you, you see the dedication and you, and you, and you think maybe this is Owen, um, you know, attempting to gain the, the esteem and affection of, of his own government. Um, here's a, a picture of that that commentary, the, the first volume of the Hebrews commentary in 1668, that's here in the Beinecke Library um, at, at Yale. Um, and you can see the dedication here. Um, and what's interesting about this, this book in particular, um, the one that's held at Beinecke, is that it appears to have belonged to um, Thomas Goodwin, who, who was a a fellow uh, dissenting minister, and we've talked about him a couple times. Uh, he was he was a good friend of Owen through their um, through the protector years and at Oxford. Um, you know, interesting for for our story here is that uh, Goodwin was probably with Owen uh, while he was working on the manuscript for this commentary. Uh, the reason we we think that is because um, a spy of the government reported in 1663 that he found Goodwin and Owen together camping um, in, a, in a place called Moore Fields. It's a really poor area outside of London. Um, and it's unclear what, what they were doing there together, but I, I presume they were working together on, on their writing and, and discussing how to live and operate in, in ministry in this new age. Um, the government was was apparently keeping a close eye on them um, and, and wanting to know what they were what they were up to. Um, uh, the, the, the detail, you know, comes from a spy, as, as I've said. But um, but Owen wasn't just going to let the government keep an eye on him. He was going to be active in approaching the government himself, and he would secure several meetings with the royal court and Charles himself. Uh, it was rumored that. Um, that uh, some of the meetings Owen had with the crown were, were, may have been dangerous for Owen. They thought it, it, they agreed to the meeting and that they would cause him harm. Uh, he wasn't ever harmed, um, but he would go and meet with the crown um, uh, on, on, on several different occasions, one, one of which in 69, um, he was seen uh, planting a kiss on, on the king's hand and he was offering appeals to the king to tolerate dissenters. Uh, most of those meetings were un unsuccessful. Uh, but following the, there was the Declaration of Indulgence in the year 1672, 
um, it, which didn't last long, but, but it allowed for a brief period for uh, dissenting ministers to, to do, do ministry without, without consequences. Um, and, and around that time, uh, Owen had one of these meetings with the king where uh, Charles uh, is said to have paid Owen money to go and distribute among dissenting ministers who had been suffering under the persecution of, of the previous years. Um, and so you take all that in and you, and you think Owen was playing just, he was playing a really deep game, right? Uh, he, he's, he's critical of the government and of the king in, in his writings, but in other places he's positive toward the king and, and um, has a lot of good things to say about him. And then here he's making appeals to the king and honoring him and kiss, kissing his hand. Um, and, and also you think about uh, you know, him having real ambitions for uh, reform in England, uh, but then he's also downplaying his participation in, in other reforms in the 40s and 50s. It's, it's hard to make sense of. Um, and so you kind of wonder you know, what, what to do with Owen here. And, and I, I don't think he's being disingenuous. I think, he, I think he's, uh, he's, he's certainly manu- maneuvering. He's being crafty. I, th- I think he's strategizing. Um, and, and to me, that, that indicates that, that Owen is, is hopeful that um, you know, the work that he's doing, even, even in this new setting, uh, may have some benefit uh, for, for Christian religion in, in the days ahead. Um, but there was another way Owen could, could push forward uh, the Puritan cause that wasn't as direct um, and as, as direct as meeting with the crown, and that was through publishing. And Owen published mostly with a man named Nathaniel Ponder, uh, and Ponder would become uh, one of the biggest uh, printers of Protestant dissenting literature. Um, and and, and Owen, Owen's Hebrews commentary in 68 was, was the first book that, that Ponder printed. Um, and so Owen, Owen saw this print shop as a way to um, get, get his own work out, but also to promote uh, other dissenting voices. Um, and so he helped, he helped um, with the publication and, and, um, and, and an, anonymity of, uh, of a man named Andrew Marvel. Um, who, who would become a staunch uh, anti-Catholic writer and, and a fierce advocate for religious toleration. Um, uh, there were other tolerationists like, like Charles Wolseley, um, too, who would follow uh, Owen out of Ponder's print shop. Um, and then there was, there was yet another who um, you all are probably more familiar with, and that was John Bunyan. And... Uh, Bunyan would, would also follow Owen and, and print with Ponder. Uh, Bunyan, Bunyan and Owen ha- had a bit of a relationship. They, um, Bunyan had a, had a congregation in a place called Bedford where it said that he would agree to release members from fellowship um, on the condition that they would join Owen's congregation at, uh, at Leiden Hall Street. Uh, and when, when Bunyan was arrested, Owen, Owen played a role in, in facilitating his release from prison. Um, and then he followed that favor up with another when Owen recommended to this, this printer, uh, Ponder, that he publish, Owen's, or he, that he publish uh, Bunyan's book. 
Um, just, do you want to take a guess what the book was? It was. It was, yeah, it was the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and so um, pre- probably the most widely read Christian book of all time outside of the Bible. I'm, I'm not sure on that, but I think that's, I think that's true, yeah. Um, and so we'll, we'll remember that now if you read the Pilgr- Pilgrim's Progress. You can, you can thank the eminent John Owen for that. Um, but, um, yeah, and so, and so Owen, Owen's strategizing in this period. He's meeting with the king uh, and, and, and strategizing with, with Goodwin, and he's also helping facilitate other voices who would, who would promote uh, religious toleration and, and, and good, uh, good Puritan works. Um, I'll say just a few, few more things um, before we close up. Uh, in 1664, Owen's daughter, uh, Judith, would die. Uh, his son, Matthew, would die the next year, 1665, probably to plague. Uh, in 1667, his wife, Mary, would die, uh, and he would remarry later uh, in the year to a woman named Dorothy. Uh, in 1682, his last surviving child, also Mary, uh, who was age 32, at the time, she would die. So I've mentioned before that all of Owen's children died. Uh, all 11 of them died before uh, he did. And so it's important to remember that this, this was a very difficult age to live in. There was plague and fire, trial, suffering, death. You know, these were, these were realities um, that I think they make those those truths of the gospel that he was preaching to his congregation seem all the more glorious. Um, you know, what hope is there in anything else other than Christ and in community with uh, Christ's people? Um, Owen would face his own sicknesses and, and physical ailments uh, in, in this later period of his life. During one sermon... Uh, he, was, he was about to move ahead, and then he paused, and he said his strength was failing, and uh, he could no longer stand to preach. And he abruptly forced to end his remarks. He steps down from, from the pulpit. Um, and so he would complain of, of all sorts of you know, bodily ailments. His vision was, was failing for, for some number of years. Um, he would die in 1683, August 24th. Um, and the day before he died, I'll just close, close with this. I, I think this, this really captures a lot of Owen's thinking. It was his whole life, but especially in this, this period of persecution. Uh, the day before he died, he, he writes this, uh, or he has his wife dictate a letter for him uh, while, while he's laying in bed. And and, and this is what she writes, or this, this is what she writes on his, on his behalf. I'm leaving the church in a storm, but while the great pilot is, is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despond because the promise stands invincible that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. And so... Even, even in the trial, even in the loss, even um, under persecution, uh, I think Owen was still hopeful.
And so that's, that's been an, an encouraging uh, point, I think, to take away from his life. Um, does anyone have questions? Where can you find that quote? Where can you find that? Yeah. Um, I think I've got that in book uh, Peter Toons edited a book called Correspondences of John Owen. Yeah, that's where you find that most easily. Um, Peter, is he a uh, modern author? Was he an author of the time? Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a modern author. He he wrote the a couple things in the 1970s on Owen. Um, he wrote a biography of Owen called God's Statesman, which was the standard for some you know about 50 years. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's where you can find that. There's, there's a number of other, uh, other little biographical bits from Owen that you can find other places. Um, I think his earliest biographer, um, you know, just a generation removed from his life also includes that. Um, yeah. How many people in England would, be, would have been sympathetic to Owen and the other dissenters in both sort of before and after the restoration? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. I don't, I don't really know what the, what the percents were. I know that, that they were, they were a, a serious minority. Um, <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure what, what the numbers are. Um, you know, during, during the revolutionary years of the 50s, um, there were a lot of people who were uh, still loyal to the, to the Stuarts, to, to the monarchy, um, but were laying low. Um, and, and so I mentioned how like a lot, of, a lot of England was celebrating the return of Charles. Um, um, a, lot of, a lot of my reading has, 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 has been with the dissenters. And so a lot of times it, it feels like every, everyone was on board with Owen, but that wasn't the case. Um, I, I, I couldn't answer specifically, I, just, I don't know. I know that they were, that they were, um, they were quite marginalized and they were, they were few compared to, um, to others. So it's interesting. <clears throat> I think this sort of sets the stage for the great awakening that would happen not too long after Owen's death, like 17, early 1700s, 1740s, 1730s. So like dissenters like Isaac Watts and um, I think, was George Whitfield a dissenter as well? He, no, no, okay. Do you know, I'm just curious, do you know what the spiritual state of the church was before this, the great awakening happened? Um, was it was it a result of the mandating of the Book of Common Prayer, priests sort of doing the motions that you had mentioned earlier, and that was that the environment the Lord sort of worked in as the Spirit brought revival to the church in the early 1700s? Yeah, I'm I'm not so so sure about how. I mean, I've looked some at how like Owen was received um, in in. The New England colonies, but uh, 
I, th I think it was, uh, you know, this, this period that we've just covered, it's, it's pretty much universally regarded as a defeated time where like the, the Puritans fail. Um, but their writings, like their writings were, were you know, exploding um, and, and, and circulating widely. Um, a lot of Owen's works would be reprinted dozens and dozens of, of times. Um, uh, I, you know, people like, like Jonathan Edwards was reading Owen um, and uh, relied on him quite a bit, I, I believe. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not. I, I, my understanding is that that, that New England Puritans um, they were they relied on a lot on 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 earlier English Puritans in, in a lot of the same ways that they were relying on the reformers. Um, they were they were carrying on, you know, this the same robust um, high God views, mm. um, and 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 trying to apply those to their to their life and, and, and to their ministry. Um, I don't, I, yeah, I guess that's all I'll say there. Yeah, uh, one thing that I have to remember is that uh, when everything looks bleakest and darkest, that's when God is working. I mean, look at the cross. Everything looked lost for naught to the disciples, but the greatest act in history happened when everything looked like it was lost. So even in the 1660s, when you look at a Puritan defeat, I mean, all these writings, I mean, I'm, I'm reading them now. <laughs> it's mm. like, wow, you know? Yeah. So it's, it might be defeat, but really it isn't because the gates of hell won't prevail mm. against our church. Yeah, and I, th I think that's, that's the perspective Owen had by the, by the end of his life. Uh, Maybe earlier on, as as a young writer, he he was um, you know a little a little more edgy, a little he was more more confident in making predictions about you know the Puritan cause and and what God was going to do and and judging uh, the oppressors and and uplifting uh, you know his his own movement um, and the Restoration brought kind of a, a bit of humility I think to him and, and to where he's he's. Maybe less bold in, in predictions. Um, he's obviously hurting and suffering, but but yeah, you still see the confidence he has in in Christ and what Christ will do uh, through His people, regardless of of what's going to come. And that that was really the message that he gave to his to his congregation. Whatever comes, like align yourself with the kingdom of heaven. Um, this one can here can surely fail. Maybe to get back to Tyler's question, I mean, one of the things that seems to happen with the Restoration is that uh, uh, you know, all these incredible ministers who are the most faithful preachers are separated from their congregations, their pulpits are closed down, they can't do anything. So it ends up being largely a famine of the Word of God. That's right. And then when, when that happens, uh, people stay religious in some sense. But it begins to be according to their instincts, and historians will say that there's a that there's a descent into what is basically a moralism, mm -hmm. and uh, 
and, and it's really out of that moralism where people just think, well, I'm trying to live a good life, yeah. uh, that then the great awakenings begin to come. So uh, in one sense, yeah, a lot of the greatest preaching of Puritanism kind of gets largely shut down. Mm-hmm. And England is spiritually barren for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. it's sad. Yeah, you make a good, a good point too about when, when you know, following the, the great ejection and then through you know, trials like, like the plague and, and the fire where, I mean, there's, England needs preachers. And so as, as you know, things like, like the Conventicle Act would, was, was kind of being loosely enforced for a couple of years, um, you know, dissenting, there was, there was a need for, for these dissenting ministers again. And so they were filling these vacant pulpits again and you, you know you see reports of 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 people enjoying that and 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 needing it because there was such a lack of of good gospel preaching then um, yeah. yeah did uh owen write much about his like personal sufferings with deaths in his family and with his own health failing did he have any insight to give on that yeah, Owen, Owen uh, gives very little uh, biographical information. Um, whenever you find a bit, it's super exciting because it's, it's so rare. Um, we would probably have more, and I think there's, there's still far more bits of correspondence that he had that hasn't been uncovered yet. But uh, we know that his, his wife... Uh, uh, you know, destroyed all of all of his personal materials after his death, which was which was a request of his, um, and so there would, we would probably have a lot a lot more there. Um, but you get it in, in little bits. You read some of these sermons, some of these unpublished sermons. Um, so there's there's a lot of Owen sermons that are published, and if you get his collection of, of works in volume eight and volume nine, you can read a lot of his sermons. But there's there's still far more that are unpublished. And what, if, you, if you compare the two, these unpublished ones that are in the notebooks of people who are in his congregation taking notes um, with the ones that are published, you notice that the, the published ones, um, they often crop out some of like introductory sentences like, you know, last week we spoke about this and now, you know, little things that, that you get some insight. So in some of those, those unpublished sermons, you see little things about, you know, Owen complaining about being tired um, and that, that would become more frequent later on. Uh, he complains about his eyesight a lot. Um, and, uh, but yeah, they, you, don't, you don't get too much from him. I wish. It would be great, though, if we did. I'm 66. I can just imagine. Yeah. So. And I got doctors. Yeah. Good um. <laughs> Owen, Owen made it to 67 without, without this, so. What was the rationale for the English government mandating the Book of Common Prayer? Um, if they both agreed on the solas, like the dissenters and the, the English, like what, what was the government aiming at? Was it they were trying to clean up what they felt were sloppy 
theology amongst the lay? Like, why did they decide to kind of clamp down? And it seemed like it was Protestant infighting at that point. It was one faction of Protestantism versus another. Yeah, I, I, I think it was, it was a, a quest of having total religious harmony. Um, and probably the, the belief that that would correspond to, you know, you know, civil harmony and, and, a, and a more prosperous kingdom. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the dissenting, the, the dissenters writing, they're trying to push back on that and say, that's, you know, we're not, we're not hurting the kingdom. And in fact, like you look at, you know, Owen, Owen would say, like you, you look at Roman Catholicism who, you know, even, even, even there's, you know, differences among, among them. Uh, you, there's, 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 uh, there's, there's differences in, in, in Roman Catholicism and, and all, and all types of religion that, that, that claim, uh, total unity. Um, and so he was trying to say, you know, we're not really that different and like, uh, yeah. So that, you know what, what's yeah. What what we agree on is you know these these common points of, of doctrine uh, with with the English Church. That's what's most important. But uh, yeah, I think I think it was it was the belief that like if you got everyone you know ordering worship the exact same, doing everything the same way, that um, it would translate to to peace. Um, and yeah, Owen, Owen disagreed. You know, the, the dissenters disagreed. They thought it was fake peace. You know, it was fake unity, false harmony, and it produced a lot of false converts, which, you know, would would create unrest. You know, um, it, it would be actually worse for the kingdom. It's, it's kind of it, it's hard for us nowadays to imagine how paranoid how paranoid they would have been about not having religious harmony, but there were very, very few historic examples that they could have looked at. They said, oh, look, there's religious diversity here in this community and they're flourishing. Because almost all of the historic examples were ones of religious conformity. There wasn't diversity, so they really had no experience of a pretty profound religious diversity in a community. So the thought was kind of terrifying for them. And they really did believe that if you didn't have religious unity, um, what could happen to us? It would probably be cataclysmic. Uh, mm -hmm. So there was a real fear because there was no real experience of it. Um, just, just the fear. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to imagine that because we live with it and we think, hey, the sky hasn't fallen. Mm -hmm. But they thought that the sky might fall. Mm -hmm. uh, they really did. Great. Well, um, we'll finish up next week. It'll be our last one. We'll look at um, look at how to read Owen. So, thanks.